This is a HeadGum Podcast. Andrew. Craig. We like to think that we're the number one podcast for teens, don't we? We love to think that. So when we're talking about books for teens, like YA books, I think sometimes I try to put myself in the head of like either the kid reading um, or the author trying to like reach that kid. And here's something I learned recently from R.L. Stein on Masterclass. Okay. <laughs> is that you can actually like go a real long way with like scaring a reader or like kind of, you know, getting them to have like a big emotion when they're that age if you make the fantasy of it as clear as possible. Like you make it clear that it's not really going to happen, that some mm-hmm. egg monsters are going to show up. Mm-hmm. And then you could just scare the pants off them. uh-huh and you as, heard that you learned this on master class you said i did yeah <laughs> and i think this is just it's useful information i think when we read other books like kind of in that genre or for that age bracket bob has good advice and i would like to give you some advice master class makes a meaningful gift this season for you and anyone on your shopping list whether you're watching master class on tv listening in audio mode in the app or on their site the quality speaks for itself with Masterclass instructors ready to help you reach the next level. Andrew, one-on-one classes from the world's best, like R.L. Stein, could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But with Masterclass annual memberships, it's 10 bucks a month. Memberships start at $120 a year for unlimited access to one-on-one classes with all 180-plus Masterclass instructors. I've used Masterclass. I think it's a great source for inspiration as well as practical takeaways. Uh, There's like 11 different categories or more that you can choose from. Um, And you pick new classes that are added every month, like Neil Gaiman's Art of Storytelling class that can help you create convincing characters inside your vivid fictional world. So this holiday season, give one annual membership and get one free at masterclass.com slash overdue. Right now, you can get two memberships for the price of one at masterclass.com slash overdue. Masterclass.com slash overdue. Offer terms apply. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I saw that one coming. I was thinking this (laughs) afternoon. I hope tonight we groan. I hope we do. Yes. As normally we keep the groaning internal (laughs) because I think it's just more pleasant for listeners that way. But today, we were at a Christmas party last night. I I feel the groaning today. Oh, yes. Truly. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, so we are here on our book podcast, uh, which we do every week, talking about a book that one of us usually hasn't read before. And this week, Andrew, you read what by whom? I read Titus Groan by Mervyn Peake. The first in the... Gormengast series. Gormengast series. Everything about the name of this rules to me. <laughs> We're going to talk, I think, a lot about yeah. how like grotesque everything is. Yes. I'm curious to, to know what you found in your research and reading of reviews and, and things. But sure. Yeah, this is a book that I had never, ever heard of. It's fantasy-ish, comes out in 1946. Yeah. And I, despite 
reading a lot of fantasy that came out at roughly this period in history. I have never, <laughs> ever heard of this or encountered it. And it's a, it's straight, it's strange. I, yeah. I do think there's a lot of fantasy of newer fantasy we've read that has roots in this as much or more than it has roots in like C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. Sure. Uh, thinking of like Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett in particular yes. as people okay. who, who seem like they stem from this, but boy, I just, this was just a big hole in my knowledge of the genre that I'd never. Yeah. yeah. Th- this one was on our, um, our old school Patreon recommendation list before we started doing the monthly polls. Uh, and so we're still trying to pay off those debts. Uh, that's why pop- we, that's why, that's why we stopped doing that Patreon tier. Is what? <laughs> it was just hard. It, it, just it hard. was just, it was just hard. And you know, as you're pushing that rock, up the hill over and over again it does make you groan and well that's how it kind of ties back into what we're talking about today i also always felt bad that those folks were like one and done and then didn't get like future ways to influence the show which is where the mm-hmm. poll came from anyway yeah. mm-hmm. um but this is from graham thank you graham who said i'd be grateful if you guys could cover titus grown by mervyn peak it's a unique book with a striking world characters and prose thank you again for your great podcast you're welcome. You're welcome, Graham. Graham and from like 2019 or however long we ago won't this say. Was. Okay. Um, Mervyn Peak was born in 1911 in Zhejiang, China, uh, three months before the revolution. In fact, his father was a medical missionary doctor, and his mother was a missionary assistant. They had met in the area like the decade prior. He said his his house was basically just like a mini British world. He said like it could have just been growing up in Croydon, like just mm-hmm. you know plucked there. Uh, they visited. That's, English- how, that's how colonialism be. It, sometimes. it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're doing missionary work, you're probably still doing a little bit of colonialism. Like, yep. It's just it's just in your blood at that point. He visited England uh, briefly in 1914 as a little little kid, and then the family moved there in 1922. There's I I am not uh, a Gorman Gasty, mm-hmm. um, so I can't quite a Gorman guy. <laughs> I am not a Gorman guy. Uh, so I can't quite speak to the specifics of how the you know his time in China and his connection to that uh, part of his life may have influenced this. I've seen some like loose allusions to like his sense of class or just his interest in the architecture of this castle in the series may relate to some of the places he saw while he was there. Um, so that's that's there for folks to read up on it if they're interested. He went to Waltham College in uh, 1920s. Later, the Royal Academy Schools began painting. Uh, was living in London and Sark. Started doing some set set and costume design, teaching, just being a general artist about town. Mm-hmm. Um, his first illustrated children's book was a pirate's book called Captain Slaughterboard Drops Anchor. <laughs> so <Jeez>. good. <laughs> Wow. All right. Um, when Don't war pull any broke, punches, Mervin. <laughs> when World War II broke out, he did apply to be a war artist uh, so that he would not actually have to go to the front lines and fight, but that his application was turned down, so he mm-hmm. was enlisted in the army. War, war, wardist is what those yes, people, sorry. Uh, I portmanteau that they like to be called. Misspoke. Mm-hmm. Um, he did uh, this. Contributed to a decline in his health. I was trying to figure out what phrase I wanted to use there. He did Mm -hmm. not do well uh, in that part of the army. He kept trying to get out of it and ultimately kind of wound up um, invalided is the phrase I saw in in, like British coverage. I'm not familiar with that use Hmm. of the verb, but 
um, discharged, I presume, for medical reasons. Uh, he did create some other paintings towards the end, and uh, also after the war, I think maybe right after this book was published, or uh, he was one of the few, you know, first initial group of civilians who wound up seeing um, some of the atrocities uh, of the camps uh, mm-hmm. in mainland Europe and did some painting and art, which he felt ambiguous about because, you know, what he was portraying was horrific. But yeah, um, you can find those. Those are on display in, in a couple different museums in England, um, just kind of documenting uh, the horrors of the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, he started writing this book while he was uh, in the army um, and works on it. Uh, he starts writing Titus Groan. By that point in the 40s, he had done illustrations for editions of Lewis Carroll, Coleridge, Brothers Grimm, Lewis Stevenson. Um, and then Gormenghast. So what? This is 46. Gormenghast is 50. Mm-hmm. He has another comic novel, Mr. Pie, spelled with a Y-E, <laughs> come out in mm-hmm. 1953. Um, he did, along the way, get a Heinemann Foundation Prize for some poems, as well as for Gormenghast. And then in the 1950s, his health is starting to decline. Um, he is not publishing that much. He writes t- Titus Alone. And then he writes some fragments of a book called Titus Awakes, which is the fourth Gormenghast novel that his wife would later publish her manuscript of it based well, on so his, right? Her, his wife wrote a finished version of it in like the 70s but it wasn't published until like a decade ago because oh okay just like among her effects and it was not a thing that she like actually pushed to put out into the world okay okay i also think there's a there's a a novella called boy in darkness that was published in 56 in between gorman gas and titus alone i don't know chronologically when it where it's said to fall but it's also in the like in the cycle oh okay cool yeah um, and then he passed away in 1968. Um, he'd been suffering, among other physical issues, with like dementia, Parkinson's stuff. So we lost him early, um, relative to you know what his career was up to. And he had been doing a lot of other art. You can just like his art is cool. Like just look up his illustrations; they're really yeah. Cool. It's it's interesting because the the edition that I read does have oh neat. I think and I think it did come out in like 2011 ish because I think there was a big. Uh, like repackaging and re-release of all this stuff for what would have been his 100th birthday. Sure, sure. Um, so I had like a new intro and, and some other stuff. But yeah, it, it collected a bunch of like illustrations from his notes that didn't appear in the original. Like he, he didn't illustrate it initially. And most of what the illustrations are are just like him sketching various characters. Like he's not really illustrating specific scenes all yeah, that all that yeah. often. But it is kind of, it's it's neat to see the sketches in here just in the same way i read a um i don't remember if we talked about this a ton on the show i read like a an illust like an annotated version of the hobbit that brought oh, in yeah. illustrations from a bunch of like international editions and and all and some of tolkien's stuff that didn't appear in the the original publications and man as it's a lot of fun <laughs> yeah it's pretty wild it's pretty good <laughs> um so there was a 2000 adaptation a bbc miniseries of the gormenghast story uh that had jonathan reese myers christopher lee richard griffith zoe wanamaker those are just the names i recognize i'm sure Mm -hmm. other people in it were people if i saw their face i'd go oh that person uh christopher lee never guy guy never found a job he 
turned down. Nope. <laughs> which, which leads to a lot of interesting work, I think. Uh, there's, I think there was another adaptation in 2011, and then you can find stuff going back as another TV adaptation, going back as far as 2015, attaching Neil Gaiman to adaptations of this project. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a rumored film adaptation um, where uh, he... I think he tweeted something where he was like, tomorrow we're going to talk to the studios. And then he retweeted a fan who had advised him, do not let Peter Jackson anywhere near it. I don't want to watch <laughs> nine Gorman Gast films. I would, but I don't want to. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's retweets, I guess, equal endorsement. That's a funny, the topical joke for, for that time yes. period. Um, Hobbit was coming out. And then I think... Boy, those were not good flicks. <laughs> The hot ones, say. yeah, no, yeah, they're no well. good. They're bad. Uh, and then he also got attached to a. They, I think, they moved it to TV. Gaiman did, and it's kind of been on a shelf with Showtime for a few years. I think the earliest I saw was 2019, around when he was also getting the Sandman thing up and running. Somebody asked him on Twitter this March if uh, the adaptation was still alive, and all he said was, "I hope so." Yeah, I've got. I, I would. I wonder if, yeah, because Sandman and like Good Omens both being on at the yeah. same time could either be great for Neil Gaiman's TV career or bad for it. I'm not sure which. It kind of seems like it's on a bubble right now. Uh, yeah. So the other stuff I have is more relevant to the book itself, Andrew. So maybe mm-hmm. we take a break and then you can take me to Gormengast okay. and I can meet Titus. Let's Gorman go. <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Andrew, you don't need to travel to a fictional world made up by a British author that we're just learning about to get away from the stresses of the holiday, end of year, playoff run. I don't. You don't. This is news, this is news to me. The time of year can be a lot. There's a lot of anxiety and there are, you know, a lot of, oh, this time of year again, that can really build up the stress. But therapy can be a bright spot amid all of it, and it's something that can keep you grounded while you navigate the end of the year. I think therapy is a great tool uh, for setting boundaries, talking through issues or kind of unresolved conflicts you might have with some people that you're going to be spending some time with. And sometimes all you need uh, to know how to move forward is someone listening while you think through the problem at hand. Uh, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Conveniently, it's all online. It could be suited to meet your schedule. So just fill out the brief questionnaire, get matched with licensed therapists, and switch at any time for no charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash overdue today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash overdue. Greg, this podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you are a guy who works in the kitchens and you want to work your way up through the power structure uh, quickly and nefariously, you know, one way to get the word out about your skills is a website. It is. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. (laughs) They give you beautiful templates, easy to use drag and drop tools, e-commerce stuff, analytics, all kinds of other things. All the ingredients that you mix up in a big pot and you put it in the oven and out comes a website, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, here's some of the other stuff we like about Squarespace. Craig, it's cold outside, but one thing's never going to freeze. It's the Fluid Engine, <laughs> a next-generation website design system from Squarespace. It's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. <laughs> Start with the best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. 
They also give you blogging tools to help you share your stories, photos, videos, and updates, categorize, share, and schedule your posts to make your content work for you. And you can use website analytics insights to grow your business, learn where your site visits and sales are coming from, and analyze which channels are most effective, improve your website, and build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content. If any of this sounds good to you, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Okay, Craig, Titus Grown. Titus Grown. First, the first thing to know, uh, Grown is a surname of the like the ruling family of Gorman Gas. Titus Grown is the seventy. Eventually, he's the seventy seventh Earl of Gorman Gas. What is <laughs> so Gorman Gas? Gorman Gas is a big, creepy sort of cat, like <laughs> just the whole. Maybe because of the book cover. <laughs> I just imagine the entire world being black and white, even though I know it's not that way. There, mm. there is color described, <laughs> but it's just kind of a big spooky castle, and it's like it could not. Th- there is a you know there there are environs around the castle. There sure. we, we do hear some things from some people who live outside the castle. I'll say right up front that I'm probably not going to end up talking about like any of them very much because they're okay. not in the they're not in the book a ton, and they're also just like not what I thought was most interesting about what the book was doing. Sure. But like we, we're pretty far from like detailed map and like political system fantasy. Yes. Like as far like this is a kingdom that's had 77 distinct earls (laughs) and does not also the, the kingdom seems to mostly be like 11 people in a castle bouncing off each other. Like there are, there are other people, but it's just not, It is very interested in being a character study for a few people and not a lot in like doing a doing a doing a world building. Yes. Well, yeah. okay. I had I had heard that it was basically like self-contained to this city inside a castle, uh but city used in the, you know, broadest sense possible. It's like the place where people are. Yeah. Right. It's not, but it's not like just a family, is it? Are there servants? No, it's not and- just. It's not just a family. You definitely also have a lot of people who are like working for them. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna go through plot stuff and walk you through what Please. what the plot is at some point. Okay. But I do want to say, like, even more than usual, this is a book where me giving you a a plot synopsis does not reflect anything about the experience of actually reading the book, which is extremely like, it's super long winded. Like it's, it's beautifully written in a lot of places, but it's, it it is very florid and it jumps around a lot and it has a habit of giving you a few chapters in a row and building up ahead of steam and then switching to some other totally separate thing for a bit and then getting back to the head of steam stuff later. (laughs) Someone in our discord was talking about reading Moby Dick recently Mm-hmm. And that's that was my, in addition to just being un, incapable of finishing that book for a period of time, that was my experience of Moby Dick. Was like, uh-huh. this is cool. <sighs> whales, huh? Yep, whales. Learn about them. <laughs> here's how you put whale fat in barrels what the, or whatever. <laughs> what is the particular thing or like type of thing that gr- that like f- gets tossed in the gears that like causes that kind of momentum deflation? 
Is it? What do you mean? It's just it's it's mostly just like a it'll it'll switch perspective to someone who is like there's a particular character who's like Mm -hmm. a wet nurse for Titus. So Titus, the the beginning of this book is Titus being born. He's a baby. Um, The current Earl is like seventy ish and infirm and like depressed all the time, (laughs) and has like a fifteen year old daughter, but that that daughter whose name is Fuchsia, she cannot be the the Earl, the heir, yeah, okay. because she's a woman. Okay. Um. And so, so you, this the book roughly covers like the first two ish years of Titus's life. Titus is not really a character in it because he's a baby. Sure. And you are, you know, the the subsequent books cover more of his, like he is more of an entity in them and less of just like a a thing that sets events in motion. But that's yeah. what he that's what he is in this book. Okay. So there's a wet nurse for Titus who comes from outside the castle walls. And I think I felt like especially her and I, you can tell that she and some other stuff that like happens to her is it's, it's being set up to be more of a thing in like subsequent stories. But in this book, hundred percent of the time, it's kind of like, Oh, we got to pay attention to her again. Huh? Like it's, it's, oh, a, it's a no. little momentum. Okay. Sapping to have like to go and do like two chapters about her and like these two guys who are fighting over her and it's like no I wanted to hear more about like this big horrible chef and the <laughs> other guy in the castle who he's beefing with and how they have like a duel in the spider room like that's what that's what I want to be reading about yeah okay so okay so you said you had some more research like specific to this book I, one thing that I have no sense of at all except for like noting some surface similarities to some other newer authors that we've read. I don't know where this exists in like the fantasy canon anywhere. Like what was your sense of like the context of, of, of this and like the influence of it? Because I, like I said, I totally missed it. Yeah. So like never, not only have never read of it, but have never like never heard of it, never heard of Mervyn Peak. like never, like it might as well not have existed for me until two weeks ago. I am in the same boat as you relative Mm -hmm. to who is Mervyn Peak, And so here's what, here's what I was able to find. Like, no, I couldn't, what I couldn't find was like a timeline of popular fantasy books that included Titus Grown. Like that Mm -hmm. just was not a resource I could find. What I found were like a couple of different reviews, like one from Blackgate Magazine that talks about it that mentions Graham Greene helped like edit it. I'm going to do like a, a lot of name checking, I think, to kind of give you a sense. And then we'll, we'll build to what that means, I think. Graham Greene okay. helped to do some editing. Um, Harold Bloom, our old friend, thought it was wonderful. Uh, Anthony Burgess, who I'll talk about a bit more. That's the Clockwork Orange guy, right? I don't know. I think so. Um <laughs> I'm saying that now as if I... Yes, he's the Clockwork Orange guy. Okay. Okay. Um, He loved it, and so much so that he wrote like a big old intro for the 1968 printing. Um, I was like researching it on PBS, and they're like, man, it was delivered to critical acclaim. I can't find any of those reviews. I don't know which (laughs) reviews were the good ones, because the two contemporaneous ones that I could easily find were from Kirkus, mm-hmm. uh, because they go back to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reviewer called it a ponderous effort and a difficult book, impossible to place, and very limited in its appeal. Uh, sure. For the New York I, that that doesn't <laughs> ring under. I, I generally liked it, I think, but that doesn't. I totally get if. 
if you let's let's make a music analogy. If yep. like Tolkien is the Beatles and C.S. Lewis is the Rolling Stones, then I think this book is maybe the Velvet Underground because Whoa. nobody heard it at the time, but cool. it, it yeah. did end up influencing a bunch of people. I don't know. That might be an imperfect analogy, but that's the one that comes to mind. Well, I don't know. I I don't feel good applying this to the Velvet Underground, but Orville Prescott of the New York Times called this book pretentiously tedious. <laughs> Uh, I think you, I think you could probably apply that to some Velvet <laughs> Underground output. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, and then he also said something which, coming out of the mouth of Anthony Burgess, sort of sounds like a compliment. So I'll compare the two quotes in a second. Prescott says it's an extraordinary excursion into a private, imaginative creation on a mythical level of characters, an environment and culture designed solely for the personal pleasure of the author. So like. He seemed to recognize the craft, but thought it was just kind of way too self-contained and not for anyone. <laughs> like it was yeah. just a thing the author made for himself sort of vibe. Yeah, that's and and I think a lot of the time if you write something like that that appeals to you and it does happen to get out into the world somewhere, like you're inevitably going to find another brain that it sort yeah. of hits in the, in the same way, but it doesn't always necessarily make for like a mass market appeal nope nope um so then the quotes in the 68 intro by burgess there's a whole bunch of stuff where he's talking about it being this it came out the year after the war's over essentially right it's like Mm -hmm. really close and people the next round of writers that we all you know regard very highly he talks about george orwell a lot he's like these are people who are like man Mankind is bad, huh? We're bad <laughs> at it, and we're never going to be happy anymore. And here's my and all of our books have like a central thesis that addresses that. And he's like, Titus Crone doesn't do anything. <laughs> Titus Crone, yeah. mm-hmm. the world is not, quote, neither better nor worse than this one. It is merely different. Uh, Burgess says he doesn't seek to probe topical themes In technique, he appears to look back rather than forward. They nourish the private imagination. They do not exemplify the development of an art. So he's like, yeah, it's more of this kind of self-referential stuff. Um, And he's like, you can... I'm interested to learn more about this. All the reviews mention some sort of like ritual stuff. Andrew, does that sound... That rings true? Like, Yeah, there's a lot lot of that. It's it's a... It almost seems like... Almost sounds like it could be a critique of political systems a little bit, but it's just like there's a whole guy whose whole point is just to do pointless rituals. <laughs> and he gets really upset whenever like someone sneezes or something and ruins the the correct flow of what okay. the ritual is supposed to be. Like there's there's some stuff like that, but Burgess points to that and he says they seem to be symbols of the end of true historical centuries of order, but it would be dangerous to search too earnestly for the allegorical in Titus yeah. Crone. Yeah, it yeah, remains yeah. essentially a work of the closed imagination in which a world parallel to our own is presented in almost paranoid denseness of detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he seems to like that, but he recognizes what it is. And I, I found a thing with Gaiman where he talks about it being a fantasy world without magic or anything overly fantastic in its makeup. Yeah. It's a very grounded reality. Um, that we would you know recognize as such, but it just happens to be a different reality than our own. So yeah, it's, it's grounded and real in a way, but like the way every single person 
in this book, just the way that their bodies are described is a freak, like just every, like all of them. And as, as often happens in, in some of these books, I think like the worst of the, of the derision is, is pointed at fat bodies, but like even like everybody has a strange, everybody has a strange face and body and like back. And even when there's, even when peak, doesn't have anything specific he can point you to about why this person is weird. He's just like, yeah. And the, and they were, there was something just weird about their body. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Well, yeah. and they also all have like Dickens dialed up to 11 names, right? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Cause that's, that's one thing that Burgess <laughs> talks about is he talks about like finding the description of architecture and the description of the castle and everything kind of giving it this weight and this, you know, I think most of the people who like it think that gothic is a misplaced word for this book, but it is a word that comes up a lot. Um, this like serious nature, but then he's got all these people named I I don't know what their name, but I'm gonna say Fezziwick. Just like a bunch of just like Fezelbuzzle. The the you know. nanny slag is probably the most like <laughs> okay the most uh boy, what's the what's the word I want <laughs> irreverent most, or like, eccentric Mrs. Pigglewiggle looking sure. name in the. <laughs> You know, it's a nanny slag is a is like a bad guy from a rolled doll. But yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. You oh, roll, roll over nanny slag with a big piece of fruit and kill her. <laughs> and so Burgess is arguing that the like the seriousness of the setting is in like purposeful uh, tension with how wacky all the character design and description is, and so you have to take these kind of unserious people seriously. Um, that's what he seems to get out of it anyway. So, yeah, in, sure. in the context of fantasy, it seems to not be part of our like the the our contemporary understanding of what that canon is because it isn't engaging with that stuff. Yeah, right. It like the Tolkien Lewis tree. And those and those two way. guys like those two guys knew each other and they wrote letters back and forth yep. all the time. I don't know if. Mervyn Peake was was engaged with other authors in the community because it does sound like he was just kind of he was doing this in a very sort of solitary sort of yep. way. It's possible um, if he lived longer, he might have overlapped more. But the way he came to it seemed like a pretty specific experience of a visual artist uh, experimenting, you know, like moving into the written word. So. Yeah. Yeah. But like uh, Line the Witch and Wardrobe comes out in 1950. Oh, wow. OK. I think Fellowship of the I mean, The Hobbit came out in the. 30s i want to say but um fellowship of the ring came out uh in when is that in 54 so like we're, we're not we're yeah okay and, yeah and okay. it's possible that maybe maybe some of peaks health challenges also would have prevented him from and that's from engaging with people as as like thoroughly as as he might have but yeah it's just it's it's interesting that it's happening in the same like in the same place at around the same time in roughly the same genre. And it just seems like ships passing in the night. You know, that's, that's what I found interesting about it. And Gaiman was one I read talking about the, the books that we have saying that the third book Titus alone is, I, I confuse it with the other one. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's Titus Titus alone. alone. Yeah. Uh, suffers from like, while you're reading it, you're like, is this really the how it ends? Yeah. Um, and he was like, no, it, from all accounts, that's not at all. It's actually supposed to be like the first it book of Titus's adventures after leaving Gormenghast. Mm -hmm. And so 
it does not satisfy like what it is setting up. Whereas if you read the first two books, you get like a kind of complete thing. Yeah, like there are a lot of I read the summary of Gorman Gas, the second yeah. book, and it does seem like it resolves. I mean, probably as close as this book has to like a main plot, it it resolves that. So it probably feels more like a, a part two of this. And then, yeah, at the end, Titus leaves. I found another another summary I found interesting is I read um, a quick summary of the fourth one. Is that Titus Awake? Is that the name? That's of it? the only partially Titus written Awakes. one that got yeah, the finished. Partially, yeah, yeah, and that one apparently, as as Maeve Gilmore wrote it has Titus like swimming off to an island and then becoming Mervyn Peak. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so tell me what happens in this book. So it starts as as I said with the birth of Titus who is this the male heir of this this grown dynasty which is just like a bunch of strange people living in a saggy old castle with <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and we begin just by meeting some some characters. Like we, the first guy we meet, who is ends up not being really part of a book, but is who the book begins and and ends with, is this guy whose name is Mister Rotcott, who mm. <laughs> whose job is to live in the Hall of Bright Carvings, which are just like really cool carvings that the people who live outside of the castle made for various occasions and he keeps the dust off of him. And he just like lives up there by himself. And this is the first indication you get that, oh, this world's going to be populated by a bunch of strangers, strange, not strangers in the sense that I don't know them, but strangers in the sense that they're strange people. <laughs> I guess. And a guy named Mr. Flay, who is like the, the head servant of Lord Sepulcrave Grown, who's the 76th yes. Earl of Gormenghast. Uh, he's come up because he's, you know, he's helping spread the word that a boy's been, a baby boy's been born. Okay. And Mr. Rockhide's like, oh, I guess that's nice. And then we, and then from there we follow Mr. Flay for a little bit and he goes into the kitchens and we meet this guy named Swelter, who is just a gigantic evil cook who is yes. really disgusting and everything yes. we read about him is gross and everything he says is gross. And he and Mr. Flay strike up a, a mutual hatred of each other that we'll talk about in a little bit. That's another one of the threads that the story kind of picks up and resolves later. Uh, once we're in the kitchens, we meet this guy named steer Pike who just works in the kitchens. We know nothing about who he is or where he came from. He just works in the kitchens and doesn't want to anymore. Mm. And so he leaves. Every office has that guy. <laughs> yeah, he leaves with Flay and starts trying. Like everybody who's in a position of any authority in this castle, he's going to start trying to wheedle his way into their good graces and kind of climb this. He's going to try and create like social mobility for himself in a way that doesn't seem to really exist in this society very huh. much. Okay. Uh, you got a doctor named Doctor Prune Squalor who is who just laughs a lot and is very c- creepy and has big teeth and glasses. <laughs> he has a sister who you meet. You meet Cora and Clarice Grown, who are the twin sisters of Lord Sepulcrave. They are not. They don't have any power, and they are kind of dim, but they do feel aggrieved and kind of want power. Hmm. Just because they feel like it's owed to them because. 
Well, they they have grown blood, and Lord Sepulcrave's wife, the Countess Countess Gertrude, she's not even a grown. And he they hate to her. Marry a cousin? Yeah, no, I don't know. To make it stronger? I'm not. Sure. I don't know if this follows the regular monarchy rules of <laughs> okay, of sure. reproducing. But you, yeah, you just you meet and and fuchsia grown like I, I mentioned is the like the 15 year old daughter of yep. of Lord Sepulcrave. Uh, you've got. Nanny Slag, who is put in charge of taking care of, of baby so Titus. Cool. You could make a a nineties first person shooter about Nanny Slag. Nanny Slag. Um yeah, because Countess Gertrude calls Nanny Slag in and is like, Hey, I just had this baby. I don't want to see him until he's like five or six. Can you take him and race him for oh, me? boy? <laughs> I don't wanna I don't wanna be involved in this child's life until they're old enough to like exchange ideas with me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, there, there, and there are a few other, you know, one-off people. There are a few like little groups of, of people who we, who we encounter, but a lot of it is just kind of meeting one by one, these oddballs and then watching them all start to kind of bounce off each other. Um, so the, the main plot that I alluded to other than, I mean, main, the, I think the one where if you read this, you can the most you, you can best identify it as a as like an engaging story thread with forward motion where you're interested in seeing exactly what happens next, like the way that you might do if you were reading a book <laughs> is Steerpike's thing because he escapes from the kitchen, then he gets in good with the prune squallers. Um so okay, what what he first what he does is he climbs all around this castle. And here's where you get a lot of stuff about like the architecture of the Perfect. castle. Great. It seems like there are a bunch of just like rotting rooms that nobody uses it's all it's all yes. kind of it's grand but also falling apart perfect um like there's society yeah, like <laughs> the twins Cora and clarice live in a live in a room that just has like a tree coming out of the side of I it love trees and doors and they just and they uh, and it is a dead tree now and all the roots are exposed in one of the rooms so they just have a room of roots and they painted all the roots with paint what? To make them colorful so yes. that birds would come in and sit on them. But all the birds like Countess Gertrude instead. And so that's another reason that they're mad at Countess Gertrude. <laughs> anyway, Steerpike takes, he, he, so he escapes from the kitchens. He climbs all around and then he climbs into a, like a secret attic that Fuchsia uses. She runs into him. Everybody who meets Steerpike is like, a little put off with the, put off by him, but then he ends up being like clever and smart and young in a way that like wins them over enough to, to like keep him around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he sort of convinces Fuchsia and Nanny Slag to take him down with them to the prune squallers. And then he is working for the doctor for a little while. And he's just like always trying to amass this knowledge and, and find a way to get ahead. He thinks he's very smart and clever, even though he, a couple of times just like gets out over his skis and does something stupid that is nearly his undoing. Sure. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's watching him climb this ladder. And then the main, like the big event that the book revolves around is the thing he sets up where he meets the twins, Cora and Clarice. He correctly identifies their sense of grievance and starts trying to play off of it. And he is, he's going to, he convinces them to burn down Lord Sepulcrave's library that he spends all his time in. Okay. And so 
number one, Steer Pike will just happen to be walking by at the time that this library is on fire. He's going to swoop in. He's going to save everybody in oh. there because they're all in there for like a Titus related ritual thing. Okay. Uh, Sepulcrave and the, all the all the groans except for the twins and all, you know, Flay and and uh, the Prudent Squallers and you know, all, all like the major players in the book are all in this library doing this this ritual. Okay. And so Steer Pike can come in and save them. And in in doing that, he can kind of knock Sepulcrave off of his off of his game and make him go nuts. <laughs> and then also like have power over the twins because he knows a secret about them that he can then like blackmail them with. So then maybe if they come into some power, it's his power. Well, it's not even that. It's just like he's he, he is exerting power over people and like it's it's the like the the, the way he's going to climb from this is i came in and i saved lord sepulcrave and his whole family boy won't sure. they be grateful to me cool young clever steer pike who everybody loves okay and with the twins they're they're mostly just like a means to that end um sure. and once he is done with them he's mostly content to just yell at them periodically to make sure they don't tell anybody any of the details about anything that happened. Okay. Um, and the, so the, the book ends with him like ascending to this. There's a, initially it's a guy named sour dust who is like 90 something years old and he's the keeper of all the rituals and he's running this stuff. He dies in this library fire. Oh no. Incident. Um, so his 70 year old son, Barquentine. <laughs> comes out of the rafters and starts doing this thing. And so at the end of the book, he's apprenticed to Barquentine because Barquentine doesn't have a, he doesn't have like an heir. So he doesn't get like comeuppance. Like no, he doesn't get, I, I think in, I think in the next book he gets some comeuppance. Okay. But I think there's okay. like a part two, but yeah, like watching steer Pike do his thing and watching people be vaguely suspicious of steer Pike, even though most of them are so self-involved they can barely think about anything other than themselves there's a whole interlude in, toward the toward the end where there a bunch of characters are sitting around the table together and you get a bunch of chapters that are just called that's just a bunch of reverie chapters so you have huh uh you have fuchsia's reverie and a dr prune squalor's reverie and you have cora and clarice's reverie i think i think you get clarice's first and then a couple chapters later, you get Cora's and it says every word of this is exactly the same except for one. And it's you need to put Cora's name wherever <laughs> Clarice imagined her own name. Because the, the twins are just like always thinking the same thing all the time. That's funny. I like thinking that. Thinking and doing the same thing. I like that. Um, and yeah, everybody is everybody's just barely aware of the world outside them. Um and somebody oh. there, yeah, oh. there is a, as Seems you get toward emerge. the end of the book, like there's a bunch of tension in this castle and somebody like correctly identifies that it's because something is about to change in this place, this place that hates change and loves ritual mm. and has been kind of in the same rut for a long time. Like something, something's going to change and people are kind of setting it in motion and they're involved with it, but they can barely, they're not like. 
nobody's talking to each other about anything in a way that could say <laughs> help them yeah. figure out what steer pike is doing or like help them solve any problem like everybody is so oblivious and stupid most of the time <laughs> that yeah i could see how you get frustrated by it sure if you were if if what you wanted is characters like interacting with each other and and like having conversations that forwarded stories instead of just like doing weird a million weird scenes where two people kind of like talk past each other and pick at each other. And then that's, and then that's the conversation. Sure. Nanny's nanny slag is particularly bad about this. Cause she just wants to complain all the time. And okay. Fuchsia's like, nanny slag, you helped raise me. I love you, but my God, you are tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> so like you said, you mostly dug it. Like, is it that you dug, this guy's climb or is it that you just kind of dug the vibe it's not even digging the climb because the climb happens in in little bits and pieces like throughout Mm. this like almost 400 page book and you get a few chapters of it at a time but then the rest of the time you're just like hanging out with the other characters so yeah like by by the end i had come to like it because of of all the strange yeah characters and personalities and how like distinctly everyone is drawn even though they're all very strange and off-putting in their own way yeah yeah um there's also so let me i i have some selections some clips? That I can just read I yeah some. sure so here's if you want an example of like what is fun and super frustrating about this book if you're trying to read it you know, representing the two sides of the coin that you reference with that yeah, yeah. one review and then with the intro to the to the book. Yeah, yeah. Here is a uh, a paragraph and a half about Steerpike biting a pear. Yes, great. <laughs> he put out his hand and secured one of the wrinkled pears. Lifting it to his mouth, he noticed that a bite had already been taken from it taken from its side. Making use of the miniature and fluted precipice of hard white discolored flesh where Fuchsia's teeth had left their parallel grooves, he bit greedily, his top teeth severing the wrinkled skin of the pear and the teeth of his lower jaw entering the pale cliff about halfway up its face. They met in the secret and dark center of the fruit in that abactinal region where since the petals of the pear flower had been scattered in some far June breeze, a stealthy and profound maturing had progressed by day and night. Yes. It's like that's one paragraph about a dude biting a pear and yes. like it's, it's not, it's, it's fun to read. Like, it's just like on a sentence level, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But also it does it like the book's not about a guy eating pears. Like it's not like it doesn't forward anything. No. At all in any meaningful way. It's like steer pike was hungry and then he ate something here. Let me tell you everything that you could possibly know about steer pike eating this thing. So two, two things that that makes me think of one is a, is a, portion of the Burgess intro where he says the he's he's he is sharing some of the writing he's like I like I love this writing some of it is going a little far and he shares like a purple passage and then he says the whole book is a gesture only too well aware that it goes too far there is a certain built-in self-mockery we are asked to accept conventions that it is impossible to take seriously but within those conventions the blood is genuinely moved or chilled and I do feel like there is a there's a like a a, a type of art object that is just such itself that uh-huh. the only way that you can describe like it is to say it knows what it's doing. Like, 
and you and you don't even necessarily mean it as a compliment or an insult. You're just like no, just like this really is the way is that it, this is. is the way that it is. Yeah. And when you were describing the way that that man bit that pear mm-hmm. and his like fingers and everything, um, there's an article by Gaiman, Neil Gaiman, who says it, the title is "I Left My Heart in Gorman Gas." He's talking about how wonderful it is and everything. Uh, but he says, the most important thing is that Mervyn Peake was an artist. He means visual artist. He drew his characters as he wrote them, sometimes onto the very paper on which he was writing his novel. The hugeness of Gormenghast, the, the castle that is a city, the habitation that is the only place there is, is uniquely an artist's creation. So what what my brain was doing while you were reading that pear passage was like, <laughs> oh, I can see, I can picture Peake like, having drawn a still of a man eating a pear and now he's trying to tell us about it mm-hmm. and he's trying to describe it with words the best that he can and all the mm-hmm. feeling he's been trying to convey in it and that certainly to me explains why someone like Gaiman would be all about it like he's just like oh it's visual it's you know this guy's artist brain is on the page yeah and i pick that passage because i think it's it is particularly ostentatious and how just like purely ornamental and, yeah, and sure. not like doing anything that it is. But then you do, you know, you, you read some of what peak is writing about someone like steer Pike and the way that he sort of, he, he really incisively sums up exactly the kind of person that steer Pike Love is it. without, you know, without using, without using words like devious or cunning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Steer Pike had an unusual, so this is talking about Steer Pike talking to Fuchsia and he is always sort of observing how people behave and using that to triangulate how best to like flatter them and get in with them. Okay. And it says of him, Steer Pike had an unusual gift. It was to understand a subject without appreciating it. He was almost entirely cerebral in his approach, but this could not easily be perceived so shrewdly, so surely he seemed to enter into the heart of whatever he wished in his words or his deeds to mimic. Wow. So, understand a subject without appreciating. It. I like that a lot. The wind had dropped, but the air was bitterly cold and Steerpike was glad of his cape. He had turned the collar up and it stood stiffly above the level of his ears. He seemed to be bound for somewhere in particular and was not simply out for a nocturnal stroll. That peculiar half-walking, half-running gait was always with him. It appeared that he was eternally upon some secret mission, as indeed from his own viewpoint he generally was. Yeah! (laughs) I just want... I I just want randomly you to just read me snippets of peak now but not the bad not any boring ones (laughs) no and it's like even good ones even when something is like again going back to the pear thing yeah 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 yeah. even when something is kind of on its face boring you can find poetry in it sure yeah and it's only it is only when you feel like that sort of thing is getting in the way of him telling you whatever the story of this is supposed to be, that mm-hmm. it sometimes becomes frustrating, I think. Sure, sure. Um, Are there any other... Oh, yeah, here's another one oh. where Steerpike is just like... <laughs> Steerpike is like a, a a guy who just learned about Marxism in, in his, like, 100-level <laughs> poli-sci class, and now he won't stop talking to everybody about it, even though he is clearly, like, not espousing the values that he's claiming. To. Yeah. There should be no rich, no poor, no strong, no weak, said Steerpike, methodically pulling the legs off of the stag beetle one by one as he spoke. Equality is the great thing. Equality is everything. He flung the mutilated insect away. Do you agree, Lady Fuchsia? He said. 
So this book is about class is what I'm hearing. <laughs> kind of. And again, you know, that, that thing about having to stretch the find to find the allegory in here, I think is really incisive because okay. like you, you know, you mentioned the class thing just now I talked about, um, about, you know, the, the, the thing that could maybe be read as a, like a veiled swipe at like stuffy political systems Status that stand quo, too much on, politics, on tradition yeah. without, yeah, like you can stretch to fit that stuff in here if you really want to. But the book I don't think is, even if it's doing that stuff, it's, it's not interested in like making you conscious of it very, you know, very often at all. I don't Yeah. Think. It feels there's some, my hot take here is I'm really well, like, your take? well, I'm just, I'm really interested in thinking about this book as the work of a visual artist. Um, and like there are paintings that can make you think about all sorts of stuff, but like they're kind of deliberately not about one thing. Or they're, mm-hmm. or they're just kind of about a mood and a setting that then you're going to connect to a whole bunch of other things. And this this feels like and has been described by both its praisers and detractors as a mm-hmm. like singular universe uh, reminiscent of but detached from our own. And so, like, it might make you think about the world that you exist in, but it is it is actively disinterested mm-hmm. <laughs> in as much as... I guess people live in it, and we are people, so like it has that in common. Yeah, and yeah, we have yeah. castles. You and want they me to have read castles. You, you want me to read you just enough? It's also the other thing about it is it's funny a lot. Okay, yes, tell me and that here's, it's funny. I'll, I'll yeah. read you a thing about it being funny, and then we can kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. finish. Like it's hard to scratch the surface with this because it's so weird. But I think sure. the main thing about this book is just like me reading it the whole time, being like, "What is happening? And where did this come from?" <laughs> And like, am I the only person who's never encountered it before or is it everybody? And yeah, you're just thinking about that the whole time. Uh, Barkontine officiated at his father's funeral to his way of thinking it was impossible for the bones to be buried without a skull. So uh, his, his dad, uh, Sourput, what's his name? Sourpuss? Sourdust. Yes. <laughs> Which sounds like a cool... Like candy that you would eat with like a sugar stick. Yeah. You know, like a dip. Try the new sourdust from Willy Wonka. Uh, so his his body was burned in the library fire yeah. and he was a skeleton. And then somebody took his somebody took his head. Oh, no. And nobody knows anything about it. But Barkontine officiated at his father's funeral to his way of thinking. It was impossible for the bones to be buried without a skull. It was a pity that the skull could not be the one which belonged, but that there should be some sort of termination to the body before it was delivered to the earth was apparently imperative. <laughs> Uh, uh, it was decided that on the following evening the bones were to be buried whether the head were found or not it being considered a desecration to unearth any bodies from the servant's graveyard Barcontine decided that the skull of a small calf would prove equally effective one was procured from swelter and after it had been boiled and was free of the last vestige of flesh it was dried and varnished and as the hour of the burial approached and there was no sign of the original skull being found Barquentine sent Flay to Mrs. Slag's room to p- procure some blue ribbon the calf skull was all but perfect it being on the small side and dwarfing the rest of the remains far less than might have been feared <laughs> at all events the old man would be complete if not homogenous he would not be headless and his funeral would not be, would be no slipshod bury as you please affair <laughs> his dad <laughs> yeah it's his dad what a funny book yeah that's it's, the kind just, of th- it's weird it's a weird one 
it's, it feels like the kind of book where I would be at risk of missing some of the humor because I'm like, wow, there's a lot of there's words a lot of here, this. yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm really want something to happen. But actually, what you're supposed to do is like read it and, and chuckle or or feel things or something. Yeah, and like to to the book's credit, like I I read this in the space of like I read most of this in like four or five days. Yeah. Um just because of other time crunch things that are, that are happening right now. And often when I have to do that is like, I have to be careful to pull myself back from hating the book because you're like, I I gotta do it. Yeah. It's just like, it's too homeworky. It's, it's just too much of a thing. Yeah. All at all in one go. And I become less able to appreciate the stuff about it. But even though I had to do this book pretty quick and it's pretty long. And even though, as a narrative, it's it can be like structurally frustrating. I still was like every time a passage like this pops up, like it still it still pops. It's still fun to read cool. about. Cool. And like you get to the like the duel of the fates between <laughs> yes. between can Swelter and, and Mr. Flay. Close the loop on on whatever this plot is, and that'll take us out. Well, so you, Mr. Flay is. This up. Mr. Flay is mad at Steer Pike about something. He throws one of Count- Countess Gertrude's cats at Steer Pike. Oh. And at first he's really happy because the cat does like take a chunk out of Steer Pike's face. But Countess Gertrude did see it happen. And so fires Mr. Flay. Mm. But doesn't tell anybody that she did it because she's kind of a we- like everybody in this book's a weirdo recluse. But she's a- also a weirdo recluse. <laughs> and Swelter has been sort of plotting to he's got this big cleaver that he's been sharpening and he's been practicing walking really really quiet and he's gonna go and he's leaving like cakes on the stairway leading up to flay's room Mm. to kind of mess with his head and let him know that that he's coming for him Mm. but flay has seen this coming and so when he gets fired he's like okay i'm gonna leave this castle forever but first i'm gonna come back in like every night until swelter takes his shot because he doesn't know that I don't live here anymore <laughs> and I'm going to kill him. <laughs> Whoa. And so, yeah, they just, they end up having this big confrontation. They end up going into the, like the, it's the chamber of spiders or something. It's just spider webs all over the place. <laughs> There's one like kind of slapsticky sequence where, where Swelter has like spider webs all over his head and he's just about to kill Flay. But then there are like spi- spiders like crawl over his eyes and he can't see just like not and not a bunch of spiders. It's just two spiders, like yes. one on each eye just crawls over his eye. And so he he misses his opportunity to strike. <laughs> and they just have a big like fatal conflict. Oh, wow. That's been that the book has been quietly building to the entire time. But it's also. Like it also has nothing to do with any of the other big yes. stories that the book Great. is telling. So, yeah, it's just, it's a weird one, man. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had some fun with it, though. Yeah, it was fun. Enjoyed your trip weird. to Things Gorman be weird Goss. and fun, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't get stuck over there. This is it's... a, this would be a much, much different episode. And, and sometimes I think this is, this is true of our show more than other times. This would, if we had both read this book, I think we could do like three hours about it. Oh, I bet. Yeah, because sure. Because there's just so much in here that could like tickle each of our brains. <laughs> and so like me having to describe it to you in the sort of telling a friend about a book at a party way that we yeah, do, I yeah. think is like, I, 
it's just a different show. Like, yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> and I, I worry I'm not doing it justice, which is why I wanted to close with just like reading a bunch of parts of it yeah. because I feel like just describing it doesn't really get to what's neat about it. I wonder or if what's that's, frustrating about it. That's the, maybe that's why it's not as well known as it is. It's just like, it's good, but like, how do you tell people about it? Yeah. Like guy, you, has a, guy has an evil ring. Guy talking has to, an evil ring. People go into their furniture to find talking animals, like the fight a witch, whatever. Like it's, <laughs> it's easy to sum it up. Yep, really yeah. easy to sum up those other works of fiction in yeah. a way that this sort of defies. A a cook and a guy and a, the main the title character is a baby mm-hmm. and they all live in a castle together. Yeah, I've already lost my ability to communicate what this book is. Mm-hmm. And also, it has a weird name. Gorman. Where like the Lord, where like the Fellowship of the Ring, you're like, oh yeah, there's a fellowship about like a ring, <laughs> and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, that's pretty much. That's the thing. That's pretty much what book. it is. Yeah. <laughs> what would you call this book if you were using the C.S. Lewis naming convention from that? Boy, book? Uh, man, that's I would, I would need like fifty words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. If folks think that they can do it, if folks think that they can sum up Titus Grown down um send us an email overduepod at gmail.com hit us up on social media at overdue pod Brittany, joe sydney uh allison kyle steven and more reaching out in the past week our theme song is composed by nick larangis andrew thanks for telling me about this book you're welcome if thanks folks for listening know, to me yeah always if folks want to know more about the show where do they go overduepodcast.com is our internet website we have this month's list of books that craig can read to you Mm-hmm. Here, have we done this yet? Because we only we did it last week. We did it last we can week. Do it again. Okay, I'm just thinking about it because we figured out our bonus episodes, so maybe yep. we'll do it again. Um, also, Patreon.com/slash/OverduePod support the show financially. Get episodes of our long read projects early. I think people in the main feed are going to be finishing up our Sandman yeah, long just read now. Yeah, which to me is as distant as the Burning of Rome. Like it's <laughs> we just like we finished this forever ago because we've been reading the the Iliad by Emily Wilson. Yeah, it's true. Uh, if you're on Patreon, you've been listening to that. If you're not, you just got to keep waiting. Yep. TikTok. I mean, not on TikTok. It's still going to be a podcast, just a regular yep. podcast. TikTok might as well be Gorman Gas to me. I don't know what's over there. <laughs> just a bunch of <laughs> bunch of loner weirdos <laughs> talking to themselves. Um, so, yeah, also we have a Discord that you can get into via our Patreon. It's a fun community. Yeah. And there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Yep. Like patreon.com slash pod. Craig, what are you reading next week? Uh, and what are we reading after that? Yeah, Pachinko by Minjin Lee is what I'm reading. Um, then we are celebrating um, the happy... It says here, Horny Days? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, with Her Night with Santa by Adriana Herrera. Uh, and then our bonus episode, which will be a Patreon stream. I believe, Andrew, we said Friday the 29th. I sure. Think I'm checking my calendar right sounds, now. Sounds great. Yep. Um, so if you sign up for the the bonus hangout tier on Patreon, you can join us for a live stream where we'll be talking about the Snow Queen, which is the fairy tale that inspired Disney's hit film Frozen. Yeah. So we're gonna read some Snow Queen stuff. We'll probably talk about Frozen, mm-hmm. and you can join us. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to our podcast for another week. We assume you've been here the whole time. (laughs) All 600, whatever. Uh, Until we talk to you again next time, please try to be happy. 
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>